0: Welcome to Navarra Live. I am once again, Michael Walker, and I'm joined this evening by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing? You tried to get away from me on the Monday night show and now I'm here on a Thursday.
1: You know what? I just wish you'd respect my boundaries. I said I needed a little bit of space to rethink our relationship and you couldn't even give me that, Michael, could you?
0: No, I thought, you know, I can't have Moya interviewing Ash on a Thursday episode of Navarra Live. So I had to swap my days of the week and here I am. as I said, I was saying to Ash a bit before, I'm still feeling a little bit foggy in the head, which is just me making excuses for myself. You know, if I say anything wrong, blame the bizarre flu I got, not my own sort of uh, analysis, which is, you know, if it's bad, if it's worse than usual, let's say, put it down to that. If it's as bad as usual, then fine. That's just your opinion about my analysis. Um, but let's talk about what we're going to talk about tonight. And um, We have Nandy versus McDonald. Um, the, the battle of the season. Um, We also are going to be talking about Dominic Raab. Is he a bully? Uh, Are civil servants just snowflakes? And that's the framing in lots of the press today. And whether or not we've been too harsh on landlords' first story. As we speak, Rishi Sunak is reading the report that could determine Dominic Raab's future. The report is written by Adam Tolley KC and concerns a number of bullying allegations made against the Justice Secretary. There were eight formal complaints made against Raab, spanning his time as Brexit Secretary, Justice Secretary and Foreign Secretary. Um, And the complaints involve at least 24 people. So it's pretty significant. Um, Sunak and Raab are both keeping stum today. Uh, Sunak has said he's going to announce tomorrow what he shall do. But the General Secretary of the FDA, that's the Civil Service Union, has been on the airwaves. Dave Penman was asked about reports that civil servants would resign if Raab wasn't given the boot.
2: If you look at what Dominic Raab is facing, he's facing
0: eight separate complaints, many involving multiple civil servants across three different government departments over a period of four years. That, that's quite significant level of, of accusations. And if it's found that he did bully staff, or well, there's clear evidence around that, and in any way the Prime Minister looks um, to avoid making the decision he should make in those circumstances, I think many civil servants who... Um, have come forward and raised complaints, which is not an easy thing to do against some of the most powerful people in the country who have been named as part of that process because their names would have to be revealed to Dominic Raab. You would have to think, do you have confidence in your employer um, if that's what ultimately happens? So as I say, the report hasn't yet been published. Sunak hasn't yet made a decision about Raab's future, or at least hasn't made that public. But the nature of the allegations against Raab have been reported extensively already. This is from The Times. Um, so they write, In six months of anonymous briefings, Whitehall insiders have accused Raab of belittling and undermining staff to the extent that some vomited in fear before meetings. A few are even said to have felt suicidal. A senior civil service source claimed Raab was a, quote, Psychopath. And he said, he destroys people in terms of their confidence. The best way to describe him is like an abusive partner. The door opens and friends come and he's nice to everyone. And the moment that door closes, he's back to behaving that way. The Times also spoke to David Davis, who had a different take. Um, David Davis is a former Brexit secretary who used to work above Rob. So he told the Times this. He takes his job very seriously. He works incredibly hard. He expects the same of others and he has a fairly no-nonsense style. That's liable to run slap bang into a lot of millennial problems. Lower expectations of work. Whitehall these days falls down on the job all the time. It was made worse by COVID and work from home culture. And I can just imagine how Dominic would have run straight into that and wouldn't have given it any leeway at all. As you can see, very contrasting accounts. And they led to the Times giving the story this headline, this framing. Dominic Raab, psychopath or victim of millennial complaints? Culture. Ash, we await whether or not this guy will lose his job. Um, What do you make of this argument, though? Is he a bully? Or is this just millennial snowflakes who don't understand the values of hard work? Where do you come down on this?
1: I'm not going to try and preempt what the verdict of the report is going to be. But the first thing to say is that there are an awful lot of allegations. So we're talking about upwards of 20, perhaps, um, people coming forward with either their own accounts or to corroborate uh, other people's accounts of having witnessed, witnessed you know, aggressive, hostile, bullying behaviour. So. For there to be absolutely nothing in it, for that to simply be, you know, 20 oversensitive millennials clubbing together in between therapy and, you know, their fifth serving of avocado toast, I think stretches credulity. Um, what also maybe suggests that there's a wider problem with this crop of conservative ministers uh, and bullying is the fact that Pretty Patel was found to have bullied civil servants when she was Home Secretary. That was a breach of the ministerial code. Ordinarily, you would have to resign as a minister for breaching the ministerial code. But Boris Johnson rallied the troops and protected her from having to step down. So you've got one of Dominic Raab's colleagues uh, from the Johnson era who was found to have bullied staff and it wouldn't surprise me if that was the general attitude of cabinet ministers during that time as kind of one final thing that you know i want to say about this um, scapegoat of millennial sensitivity which is we've got absolutely no idea what the ages are of the people who've made the complaints but the reason why People like David Davis and other unnamed conservative party sources can say, oh, you know, it's just these oversensitive young is because they know that they're playing to the prejudices of newspaper editors and also large portions of their audience. You know, they're people who do really look at young people with nothing but disdain and disgust. So I think that's something which, you know, has to be called out that there's a way in which, you know, objectively shitty behavior gets a free pass because the people who it's seen to impact or presumed to impact, um, are young and therefore somehow deserving of it. You know, it didn't do us any harm. It would do them some good. They just lack a work ethic, that kind of thing. Um, it's also worth pointing out that those that Pretty Patel were found was found to have um, bullied and treated badly, not all of them were young people. Um, so maybe it just so happens that there's 20 exceptionally sensitive people who were working under Dominic Raab across two different Whitehall departments, um, or maybe, whisper it, there's a problem with the kind of working culture uh, that Conservative Party ministers uh, think it's it's not just acceptable but aspirational to instill in Whitehall.
0: I think it's three departments, actually. So I think Brexit, Justice and Foreign Secretary are complaints in all of them. I mean, in a way, it's potentially a bit of a false dichotomy, right? Because it is the case, I think... Um, at least to the best of my knowledge, that we didn't used to have all of these scandals about bullying ministers, right? And I, I can imagine that potentially that is less that we've got nastier ministers than we used to have and that culture has changed. But actually culture changing is quite possibly a very good thing, right? That The fact that workers have higher expectations about how they're going to be treated by their boss. And maybe millennials are a bit more assertive than the generation which went before them when it comes to being told to work overtime or that you can't have weekends off or that you're, you know, it, it, it's weak to have a work-life balance. It's potentially a good thing that expectations in the workplace are changing. Like it, it's not just that you've got all oh, these snowflakes who are incredibly sensitive. It might be people saying like, actually, no, we, we kind of want to have better work-life balances than we used to have. We want to be spoken to with respect. and if you know, Dominic Raab is seeing that as a bit of a culture shock, like good, maybe. I mean, I'm sure there are some downsides. But, to this. You know, when people talk about sensi- sensitive millennials and Zoomers and stuff, so, there is often something to it. But also it is just people being more assertive about their, their rights and the dignity they should have in the workplace.
1: Well, look, I'm not saying that there haven't been cultural changes. I think that there have been. But if you cast your mind back to Blair era politics, um, one, you had Alistair Campbell, who was so known for his temper and his outbursts of anger that the character of Malcolm Tucker in the thick of it was, you know, put together as a send up of that kind of workplace behavior where, you know, he was swimming around like a shark that had just, you know, smelled fresh bone marrow. Um, so that was something which was widely known and also not seen as good. You know, we now, I guess, look at Malcolm Tucker as this, you know, Almost um, cuddly, sweary figure with, you know, the benefit of time. Um, But 15 years ago, that sketch of Malcolm Tucker was, you know, seen as quite damning of Alistair Campbell. You know, before Amando Iannucci went full centrist, uh, him and Alistair Campbell were kind of at loggerheads about it. You also had, a little bit after Alistair Campbell's time in government, the um, Gordon Brown allegations of bullying. Uh, This was something which right wing papers and the conservative opposition at the time really made hay with. You know, is Gordon Brown aggressive? Does he have a temper? You know, did he hit the back of a secretary's chair? All that kind of thing. Um, So when when it served their political purposes, the right were very happy. To say this is an unacceptable workplace culture, which is being overseen by Gordon Brown or Alistair Campbell, whoever else it might be. Um, And now it's something which is impacting them. It's like, oh no, this is just sensitive, you know, millennials and snowflakes. I think you're right to talk about some cultural changes which have happened more generally. There's also the case that there has been a lot of focus on the culture in Westminster. There was the, you know, series of Pestminster allegations of sexual harassment and inappropriate behavior on the part of politicians in Westminster, which has led to a you know, renewed focus on complaints procedures and the ability of you know, staff to report bad behavior on the part of politicians. Um, but I do think that there is a kind of, you know, a, a cross party problem where people who are in positions of power, who feel themselves to be above everybody else, who, sure, work very demanding job, it's not easy being a cabinet minister, though it was, must have been pretty nice for Dominic Raab to paddleboard while Kabul fell, um, you know, to take that out on people who uh, work under them in ways which, you know they feel that they're justified and and validated in doing. That's not just a Conservative Party problem. Um, That has been a Labour problem as well. But what's interesting about the Conservative Party is that even when you have had these uh, reports in the case of Priti Patel saying, you know, this really bad fucked up thing happened. It was a breach of the ministerial code. They just go, yeah, not going to resign. Don't want to be held accountable for that. Sorry, love.
0: I was thinking about the Malcolm Tucker thing because I'm not sure it it was universally read as this is bad. I think some people thought this is entertaining, as good as, you know, uh, we don't know how closely Alistair Campbell was like Malcolm Tucker when he was in office, but I don't think people watched that and thought Malcolm Tucker should be fired. And Alistair Campbell clearly wasn't fired for that, you know, for, for the way he treated other staff members. So I feel like potentially, you know, if Alistair Campbell had worked in Westminster now, he might have lost his job or had an investigation. And I think back then it was potentially more, more sort of taken as a given that, People are very unpleasant in these jobs, and this is how it's supposed to work. So, if, if you're not, if you can't take this stuff, get out of this high-pressure office. I mean, do you think there's anything to that, Ash, or do you you think I'm sort of I'm on the wrong track here?
1: Well, I guess just with the Alistair Campbell thing, and it's hard to think about how it was seen and how it was received at the time. Right, we're looking at it from our own vantage point. Is that I don't think he was necessarily always happy with that portrayal of him. Sure, it made him look like an effective political operator, you know, someone who was willing to break bones in order to get his boss's way. Um, but I don't think that that was necessarily seen as aspirational. Necessary, maybe, but not aspirational.
0: Let's go on to our next story. We love a Twitter controversy on this show. And I myself appear to have accidentally started one. It's because of a thread I posted about a podcast I'd made with our very own Aaron Bastani and my good friend Gary Stevenson. And there's one tweet in particular. Um, which has caused quite the stir. So it's this, um, I'm quoting Gary Stevenson, the people I know who went into buy to let landlordism are not the rich people I know, it's the immigrant families. This is how many times it's been quote tweeted. So it's been quote tweeted 181 times and retweeted 10 times. Now, if you don't use Twitter, what that means is this is a ratio. This is lots of people sharing this to say, I hate this video. Um, And only 10 people sharing it sort of to say, great, we like this. Um, So I've been ratioed. Let's look at the video in that tweet.
3: I come from a poor background, right? But then I worked in the city. I've been to LSE. I've been to Oxford. Um, I grew up in Ilford, which is a very, very immigrant area. And um, but I went to grammar school. I got expelled from grammar school. I went to comprehensive. So I know people from a lot of different backgrounds. Um, the people I know have gone into landlordism are not the. It's not the rich people I know. It's the immigrant families who've gone into landlordism. Um, And the rich people I know, what they have is big pensions and big family property. They're richer than my friends who are buy-to-let land. And the reason reason that is like that is because buy-to-let landlordism is a very hassle way to make money, right? When you consider my rich friends, they just have stocks in their pension. They don't have to deal with replacing boilers. And I'm not trying to defend landlords here, but I think there's a sort of a... There's an interesting part of this debate. We have created a society where if you don't have wealth... Your kids are going to have a difficult life. That's the society we live in, right? And there's these kind of working class strivers who are trying to build up in property. And we're saying, well, these are the bad guys. At the same time, you know, there's people who have big pensions and big houses. And we're saying they're okay, even though they're richer. So I think there's a bit of a... There's a, for me, there's a bit of a worrying class aspect when it becomes very much these are the wrong kinds of rich people and these are the right kinds of rich people. You know? um, ultimately, there's a question here of how do we provide affordable, good quality, secure housing in a very unequal society? And I would say we should address the inequality, but failing that, we need to look at what we could do in the meantime. That was part of a much longer discussion I had on
0: uh, my podcast called Crash Course. Now, this is a disclaimer, so it's not an Avara product. So there are quite a lot of people quote tweeting that saying, Navarra Media have completely lost the plot. No, um, if you're upset by the contents of, of of that show, it's it's me that's lost the plot, not Navarra Media. So disclaimer for the organization. Obviously, Ash, lots of people getting annoyed saying, is this now, a, you guys are pro landlords. Why are we um, supposed to be sympathetic to, to landlords? What's this guy, Gary, talking about? Um, what's your take?
1: Gary Stevenson in that clip makes some very good and astute points. And I think he also makes what are, in my opinion, some very silly points. So the good points are that buy-to-let landlordism was something which was marketed to people who didn't come from generational wealth. Maybe they were the individuals who were able to purchase their council house under right to buy. Maybe they're people who, you know, perhaps didn't go to university, didn't become graduates, but were able to make a decent enough money uh, and buy a property or two and let one or more of them out. Now, that doesn't mean, as you know, Gary says, that this is some kind of morally neutral thing to do simply because you've come from a working class background. The overall impact of buy-to-let landlordism, as we know, has been to push the cost of housing up for everybody. So this was a report which was compiled by a right-wing think tank called Onward and published in 2018. And it found that buy-to-let landlordism had excluded at that time at least 2.2 million families from home ownership. Now, in the intervening five years, I can only imagine that that's a phenomenon which has gotten worse. So we can say that millions of people have been excluded from home ownership because of the existence of buy-to-let landlords. It has had a uh, really awful impact on the supply of council and social housing. Um, So two out of every five properties which were bought under right to buy became buy-to-lets. So that's a massive transfer of property from public hands, and it meant that they were affordable forms of housing, secure forms of affordable housing, and they were transferred into private hands. What we've seen in those years is that the cost of housing has gone up and those properties haven't gotten nicer, right? Just gotten a hell of a lot more expensive. Now, the argument that Gary Stevenson's making is, well, it's a kind of class snobbery to look at the buy-to-let landlords and not look at the people who have, you know, investment portfolios and stocks and this and that. And I think, of course, nobody is saying that if your pension is wrapped up in You know, fossil fuels or weapons manufacturers. That that's fine. You know, if you're somebody who operates as a venture capitalist, well, as long as you're not a landlord, um, you know, you're better than them. Nobody's saying that. But what people are pointing at is that landlordism, rentierism, has been one of the most toxic, corrosive, poisonous things. Uh, in our society over the past few decades. You look at what's happened to people's disposable income. You look at what's happening in terms of young people's pensions. There's an article that came out today which found that 90% of young people aren't saving enough money for their pensions. Why is that? It's because of the cost of housing. More young people choosing not to have children for the very basic reason that they can't afford them. Um, I don't think that just because you're somebody who hasn't come from Uh, intergenerational wealth, then, you know, your form of landlordism becomes, becomes morally neutral. And I think that with this inference of, of class snobbery, we're getting back to that age old argument of what is class is class about, you know, where you grew up, how you grew up, you know, are you in manual labor? Did you graduate from university? So on and so forth. Or is class simply about your material circumstances? Is it simply about you know the property you own? Do you uh, live off wages or do you live off work? Now, the answer is it's complicated and it depends what you're talking about. Of course, the cultural components of class are really important in some contexts. But when we're talking about those who are excluded from asset ownership, which is really the only part of the economy that's growing because wages certainly aren't, and people who've been able to leverage property ownership to extract money in the form of rents from those who aren't able to do that, to go, okay, well, the person who owns the property is more working class than the tenant because they went to a certain school or they didn't go to university and the tenant's got a posh accent. That's very silly in my
0: opinion. He's my good friend. He came on my podcast. I love Gary Stevenson. Always think he's incredibly insightful. But I also do... Agree with him more than you do, Ash, I think. And the reason I say this is actually, you know, I've done a 12-part podcast now on like renting and landlordism, and I've actually ended it softer on landlords than I started. And that's not because I now think landlords are these really great people, and I think that actually the private rental sector is this brilliant thing that we should keep. I think landlordism is a fundamentally immoral relationship, the relationship of someone who has enough money to buy an asset and then someone else has to pay them um, part of their wage to live in it. I think that's an immoral relationship. At the same time, I don't think the reason that immoral relationship is so important in our society is because too many people wanted to become landlords, right? What made me think this especially was looking at how rents went up in London over the past 12 months. And in part, that was because lots of landlords sold up. They sold up for a bunch of reasons, partly because house prices increased so they could sort of cash out. And also because there were some tax changes, which made it less financially attractive to be a landlord. Again, I'm not, you know, tiny violins for the landlords who had to pay a bit more tax. But the consequence of landlords selling up wasn't actually um, that loads of people were. Some people would have been able to become homeowners, but not loads of people. And homeowners, because of they tend to sort of spread out more in houses than you do when when something is in the private rental sector. So it's actually made it difficult for private renters to rent property because of lots of, of landlords have sold up. So for me, it's it's not actually landlords that are the root of the problem. Even though, I suppose the the thing I think is fundamentally immoral is raising rent on your tenants and thinking that because. The market has changed. You have a God-given right to exploit your position in the market. That's what I think is fundamentally wrong. And obviously, I want a society with no landlords. I think it's a completely pointless function that we have in society. But at the same time, I, I don't think that bashing landlords gets us that far because what we fundamentally need is more social housing. I suppose one thing to pick up there on with you, Ash, there is I think that, that point you said about they've damaged the supply of social housing because they've bought up social houses, I mean, it, it's... It's, it's not really their fault, is it? I mean, the, the fault isn't that some people bought these social housing. It's that they were sold in the first place.
1: Yeah, And that's why we've got a systemic critique of landlordism, of rentierism, mm. right? Neither of us think that simply by wearing a Navara media hate landlord's cap and shaming people out of the act of being landlords, that that's going to deal with the housing crisis. Absolutely nobody thinks that. But if you're going to deal with a housing crisis, you're going to have to do it in a multi-pronged way. You're going to have to do some stuff which makes life more difficult for landlords. You do have to have a disincentive for buying up property that could otherwise be owned by the people who live in them. Right? You do have to have a disincentive for that. And you also have to increase the supply of housing. It's two things that have to happen at the same time. Now, a kind of thing that the interesting thing, and this is a moral question as much as it is anything else, is social mobility, right? So if you're someone who comes from a working class background, you come from an immigrant background, you're somebody who doesn't have that family wealth that you can kind of coast through life on. I think that some people who come from those backgrounds do have a different perspective on it. And this might be to do with something like being a landlord. This might be to do with something like sending your children to private school. Now, no one here thinks that individual choices are the way in which you end up with a more morally just society we'd say okay well you have to deal with it at the source you have to deal with it at the source of the problem of landlordism you have to deal with it at the source of the problem of insufficient housing supply and you've got to deal with it at the source of the problem of the existence of fee paying schools and their tax privilege status but as in as human beings, of course we relate to each other as individuals. And of course we think about our own choices and we make judgments of other people's choices as well. And something which I do see a lot of, and I'm not necessarily saying this is what Gary Stevenson was saying, but it does touch on this theme is you'll see TikToks from, you know, young working class people, young working class people of color saying I've become a landlord or, you know, i I went to private schools. My parents wanted the best from me. And you know what, because of the kinds of discrimination that people like me experience in the labor market, that's fine. That's morally justified. That's the thing that we have to do to survive. And I think you can hold two things to be true at once. The first thing is of course, that systemic critique where you do talk about the kinds of discrimination that impacts materially the life circumstances of working class people and people of color. Um, you know, it, a very stark statistic is the contrast between the amount of average household wealth of a white family in this country versus a black family in this country. Have that systemic critique, which is based on uh, injustice and unfairness and problems with the system. But also, you kind of have to have conversations in the interest of building solidarity between people, thinking about the kind of shared political subjectivity that we need to form a progressive social majority and say, okay, but it's not right to you know get a leg up by stamping on the person immediately below you, whether that's because you're extracting rents from them or, you know, you're you're jumping ahead in the queue of life by sending your kid to a fee paying school. I think those are totally legitimate conversations to have just so long as you make sure that you don't, you know, overemphasize the individual choice above the problems with the system.
0: One thing I have changed slightly on is I used to think the biggest moral problem was renting out an asset. And I still think that's morally problematic and that we shouldn't have a society where, you, where one does that. I don't think there's any use to it. But I think in the present situation, actually, the more damaging thing for renters and people excluded from the, the housing market isn't people who buy assets and rent them out. It's people who just own more assets than they need. So I suppose that where I actually really do agree with Gary is if you've got lots of these middle-class people who live in these big houses and think that, oh, my hands are clean because I'm not a landlord. Well, if you're overoccupying space then you are the problem, right? <laughs> what we need is for people only to occupy the amount of space they need. And then that will give other people the chance to live in homes because it will be more evenly distributed. Obviously, some of these sort of conflicts and this zero sum game would be lessened if we built loads more houses and if we built loads more social housing. But as it is, the decision which is more problematic for renters isn't so much that landlords exist, it's that loads of people, it's that, it's that housing is so unequally distributed. Um, obviously, I want a world without landlords um we we need to distribute our housing much better but i do think that you you can have a sort of my hands are clean even though i live in this big fuck off massive house now obviously that's only some people anyway obviously you know people say well why are you having this argument between two different members of the top 10 That i kind of do agree with that one let's go on to our next story Every week has a different trans moral panic. And this week, it's all been about the Women's Institute. On Monday, The Telegraph declared this backlash from members over Women's Institute decision to admit transgender women. And then you've got this subtitle, Controversial Policy Puts Women's Institute in Untenable Position and Should Be Paused to Allow Vote on New Admissions. All very dramatic. And the Daily Mail went with this. Women's Institute faces a revolt as group launches bid to overturn policy allowing transgender members to join. Um, And before you knew it, this was a story. There were segments debating admission to Women's Institute on GB News, on Talk Radio, on Times Radio, and LBC is all over the place. Um, We'll look at one of those clips in a moment. First, though, let's fast forward to the end of the story. Because, um, for once, I think this one has a bit of a happy ending. The Women's Institute has responded to the ferrari and their CEO, Melissa Green, has said this. Being part of the WI is about the experience of being a woman and that is a combination of both biology and lived experience. For us, transgender women are women and we want to share and celebrate their experience with them. I know from speaking to so many of our members that they feel we are enriched by that, that we learn something about being a woman through the eyes of transgender women. I know from speaking to many transgender women who are members of ours that they feel overwhelmed by the love, support, and fellowship they're offered by WI members through what is often a very difficult journey for them. Um, Green said that far from an internal revolt from people who'd wanted to exclude trans people. She'd only received two emails about the issue. Um, One was in support of the trans-inclusive policy, which has been in place since the 1970s, by the way, this is not new, so it's been informal since the 1970s, been formalized in 2015. A few hundred people signed a petition. Um, That's what made it a news story. Um, I checked out that petition. It's, It's not clear. There's no way that they can prove the people who signed it are even part of the Women's Institute, or even real people, in fact. That's how these petitions often work. There's two sort of, lessons we can take from this story. So one is how little you need for something to become a trans panic and be sort of leading all the main newspapers. This was a a petition signed by a couple of hundred people, right? Um, Petitions get made all the time. But this was the big, big story all over the radio, all over newspaper headlines. And then it turns out to be basically nothing but then the other lesson to take from it, I think, is, you know, it's, it's not just radical leftists who say trans inclusion is good. Like the Women's Institute, very much a normie institution. Um, I'm sure their CEO isn't a Navara viewer and of the radical left. But that was a really, I thought, lovely statement to come out of this.
1: So on your first point, that it doesn't take much to manufacture a trans moral panic story. One of the things which I've noticed happening recently is that the Daily Mail has been running uh, trans moral panic stories on the basis of parody accounts on Twitter and Facebook. So these are parody accounts, which I believe are often set up by people who are themselves transphobic and not trans people, you know, claiming to be like, you know, some radical fringe transgender group who want governments to outlaw Shania Twain's man. I feel like a woman, stuff like that. And, this is something which is obviously a parody. If you're somebody with any internet literacy whatsoever, you'd be able to smell a sock puppet account at 50 paces, but it is covered with a degree of total credulity and pearl clutching and outrage by the Daily Mail. And then it's often, you know, shared with a oh, I can't believe what they've done now, kind of captioned by the likes of Piers Morgan. And when you point out, hang on, this is really obviously a parody account. This isn't something which is real. And now you're using this to portray the trans community as making these really unreasonable demands, and it's simply not true. This just isn't true. You've fallen for a hoax. One, the article doesn't get amended, it doesn't get taken down, and the people who've shared it don't feel embarrassed. And I think that's because everybody knows that You know, whether it's a parody account or whether it is a petition which has been signed by a couple of hundred people who may not even be real people, may not even be Women's Institute members, is that this is a pretext to tell the same story that you've already been telling. It's not a new story. It's an old story. It's really just about going, these trans people, they want access to everything. They think they're women. Do women have a penis? Next on Kay Burley. It's just about retreading the absolute same old ground. So for me, what this stuff indicates is a real failure of media to live up To its own standards, right? I'm not talking about, you know, mainstream media living up to Navarra media standards, living up to our standards. I'm just saying their own standards about truthfulness and accuracy. And I think you can tell a lot about who's considered a fair target in society, right? Who really is, you know, seen as outside the realm of polite society, because those are the people that the media are allowed to drop their standards for, right? Trans people aren't alone in this uh you often see it with um, anti-racist organizations you often see it with muslims you definitely saw it with regards to the left and jeremy corbyn but this tells you a bit about how you know the the boundaries of, of elite opinion are decided um but as for the you know the kernel of truth at the heart of this story, which is that the Women's Institute has been trans inclusive since the 1970s, and they formalised that in 2015. Yeah, of course, that's something which is really good and and really lovely. Um, and I liked the phrasing of the statement, which is that as women, we've got a lot that we can learn from each other. That my experience as a cisgender woman is enriched. By learning about the experiences of a transgender woman. And that is something which I believe to be true. Um, because we always come back to this question of, you know, what is a woman? And that's very often something which is asked by transphobes, because if you give an answer which is inclusive of transgender women, they accuse you of not having answered the question properly. And the thing I always think to myself, and I suppose I feel this so strongly because I'm a woman of color, is that we don't all have to be the same. We don't all have to have the same experiences of being a woman. I mean, being a woman of color means that I face things that white women don't, like racism. Being a woman of color means that because I'm perceived as less feminine, that I often get called things like it or a man or, you know, my womanhood is called into question. And that's something which when you're put in that position does, I think, give you a real sense of empathy with, transgender people. Cause you just go, actually, I know what it's like to be, you know, doubted as the gender that I am and told that I'm disgusting and that, you know, I'm undeserving of people's, uh, respect and they're going to trample all over my dignity. You know, I get that. And rather than, you know, looking at womanhood as the inclusive of difference, and you can be really understanding of those differences. Um, what transphobes say is that, no, these are irreducible differences. There's absolutely nothing nothing um, that we can learn from one another. Um, and I, I think the fact that the Women's Institute's inclusive policy has been a target really shows what these transphobes are after, because we're not talking about something like Olympic sports, where you are going to have to get into the weeds a bit about you know, differences between different kinds of bodies and working out what the boundaries are so that you can have competition. You know, we're not even talking about things like, you know, safeguarding, you know, and and an awful lot of that stuff is totally overblown. What we're talking about is, you know, hobbies and people spending time together and, you know, baking Victoria sponges and stuff, stuff which really doesn't require you to have a cervix, you know, um, And still, still that's not good enough to the transphobes, because really what this is about is is, um, excluding trans people from society and from public life and from being able to feel that they belong here just as much as anybody else does. Um, So it's a real mask off moment to be like, how dare transgender women be included in the baking competition?
0: I want to look to a couple more contributions as well, just because, you know, we talk so much about transphobia on this. It's nice to show people who are actually sort of sticking up for what's right here. And this story has provided an opportunity for a few people to do that, and actually a fairly broad range of people to do that. So it might be that the transphobes have have overstepped a little bit here and united a bigger coalition than they meant to, you know, against them, against the transphobes. And first of all, this was Caroline Noakes speaking to Tom Swarbrick on LBC. Trans women are women.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know it won't make me... Universally popular to say that, but I think we have to be supportive that trans women, with or without a gender recognition certificate, need to be included and not marginalised. Trans women without a gender recognition certificate are women. Absolutely. And I know that that might... Well, I think you have to understand that there will be many people in today's society who choose not to identify with a specific gender. They may choose, and that is to up to them. And,
1: and, and
0: all good luck to them, and I wish them very well. But absolutely, in what, in what sense is a is a trans woman who doesn't have a gender recognition certificate a woman, neither legally what, nor biologically?
4: What difference does a piece of paper make? And well, if somebody have a gender recognition,
0: as recognition certificate, why bother with
4: it? Well, well, I think that's a very good question. And why make it so difficult to go through the process? And why make people go in front of a gender recognition panel and somehow be assessed as to whether they're feminine? or masculine enough. And I think the real challenge with this debate is that it's become so toxic and so aggressive and constantly this challenge as to whether we know what a woman is or not. And, you know, to be quite frank, I think we just need to be more inclusive and more understanding of trans women and the discrimination that they face and the hostility that well, they face. About, and I can't really believe women? that we're having a toxic debate about it's whether not the toxic. WI is a safe space or trans women, or not? You know, I just want to see them included and made to feel comfortable and welcome. But in, why would they? Why would you include a biological man in a women's institute? Well, I think that that's a really basic and, uh, to be quite frank, insulting way to regard trans women. To keep harping back to calling them biological men. And I think it's really, really discriminatory and really toxic to try to break everything down to people's body parts.
0: That's very strong and uncompromising there from Caroline Notes. And she's a Tory, right? She's a Tory MP, also chair of the Women's and Equalities Select Committee. So a significant voice on this. Um, And she wasn't the only person of sort of Tory persuasions who's been supportive of trans rights this week. This is Kirsty Allsop, so the sort of property TV guru. Um, I think we've often done sort of negative sections about it when she's been talking about property, but on this she seems um, very reasonable. The more people who pile in, the more I realise why standing up for trans people matters. Telling me I shouldn't support perverts, weirdos, child abusers, etc. Just tells me that you have a twisted view of the trans community. I'm aware of the importance of safeguarding vulnerable women, there are concerns about female sport, and I worry about anyone under 18 giving up their fertility. To be honest, I so loved having my kids. I worry about anyone of any age giving up their fertility, but parenting is not for anyone. She says, but the fear and hate being deliberately manufactured by certain groups is cruel and dangerous and cannot be justified in any way. Insults fly around in any debate these days, but strong women don't crush minorities. They help protect them. Ash, how significant is that to, I think, especially the, I mean, Caroline Noakes, I think, has been vocal on this before, but especially sort of, Kirsty Allsop this week has been, I, she almost seems to have been on a journey, right, when it comes to this issue mm. on Twitter, that she's just discovered how vicious and toxic that some of the transphobes online online can be.
1: Well, yeah, because nothing will open your eyes to what so-called gender-critical feminists are really like, Um you know nothing will open your eyes like having them wade into your mentions. I mean, I remember on International Women's Day, I had a bunch of them saying that I couldn't use the International Women's Day hashtag because they accused me of being a transgender woman, and they started sharing a photo with me where I was in you know my gym gear, and they were like, "Look, that's a that's a man's body. You know, that's a biologically male body." And I was like, oh, Jesus fucking Christ!" Um, you know, that's the kind of of online radicalization which which happens to those people and for the most part in the mainstream media they're able to present themselves as victims they're able to present themselves as you know uh women who are speaking up for their rights and then you've got these trans rights activists who are always gendered as male um you know trying to silence them and you know sometimes even violently assaulting them now i'm not saying That there haven't been any cases of um, trans hostile women, um, you know, facing abuse on social media. Of course, that's happened. But what is totally erased from that story is the scale of the vitriol and the abuse and the harassment that comes from the trans hostile side, because there is an awful lot of it. And when you're somebody who is just trying to, uh, you know, as a cisgender woman, go, okay, I'm being told that. Transgender women in particular are a threat to my womanhood. They're a threat to my safety. And I'm trying to think this through. It doesn't seem that they actually are a threat to my safety. There are these kinds of things that I'm worried about. If then what you get is a tidal wave of hostility and hatred from transphobes, that's going to be the thing which makes you think to yourself, well, hang on, I'm getting this now. Because I've chosen to, you know, do some thinking in public about what are trans people really like? What must this be like? for people who are trans themselves you know they're really at the the center of the crosshairs every single day not just online but in the mainstream media having to deal with discrimination in workplaces and abuse on the street and so on and so forth you know is something which just activates what i think is a really you know basic and fundamental human instinct which is empathy um I think that there are lots of of women who do find themselves quite troubled by the way in which they see trans people being treated. I mean, if you look at the polling, it's more women than men who are broadly supportive of trans rights. But that's not the story that you get told in the media. And then when you are a woman with a public profile saying, okay, uh, I'm actually supportive of trans rights, or I think they should be included in this way, what you have is this kind of Um, electric fence being activated by trans hostile feminists who are trying to bludgeon you into submission because it destroys their narrative that they're speaking up in defense of all women. And indeed, this is something that all women want. It's not.
0: Let's go straight on to our next story. The row about that Labour attack ad is still going on. Yes, I'm talking about the claim by Starmer's party that Rishi Sunak doesn't want child rapists put in prison. It's the debate that never ends. And Lisa Nandy and John McDonnell were the latest politicians to go head-to-head on whether the advert was a good idea.
2: I think it's important that we debate the issue, hard debate of the issue, because it's so fundamentally important. Mm -hmm. Lisa's right on this. But let me just say, I know you, Lisa. This is not you. This is not you. You never go for the person in this individual way. You go for the facts and you go for the policy issue. The facts Whoever, are Whoever, the facts are there, but the reference with regard to Rishi is unacceptable. And take Michelle Obama's advice. When they go low, and that's exactly what Braverman did, and Rishi has done as well, we go high. Can We're I just, better than them. Can I just, and you know that, and you are as well. Can
4: I just gently say to you, John, first of all, I, I don't accept that the Prime Minister of this country shouldn't take responsibility for this.
2: No-one's arguing either. that. But, but secondly, do you honestly believe secondly, that Rishi as a doesn't say child abusers should that be... That you involved?
4: were a senior member of the Labour Party when we were found to have breached Equalities Law by the Equality and Human Rights Commission and, and brought us to our lowest point in our 100-year history. So yes, I will not take lessons and I'm
2: not from there, you I'm about not civility am politics. I'm not trying to lessen you or anything like that. All I'm saying is because on that issue we did address it and we held our hands up to go address it as well, including me, and I apologize. But on this, you don't do this. This is not Labour politics. We're better than this. And we can argue and win the case without personalizing it around an individual that way because it undermines our argument.
0: at least any annoying. I mean, to be honest, I feel like that was just an annoying clip in general, actually. It's been viewed like half a million times on, on, on Twitter, so it's clearly struck a chord with lots of people. But this idea that that EHRC report was the lowest point Labour have ever been in. The EHRC, as we've been talking about, especially in relation to trans rights, actually, it's a very politically motivated organisation. And when you see what laws was Labour supposed to have broken, one of them amounted to Ken Livingston and a councillor saying something on Twitter, or Ken Livingston saying something on the radio. And the other one was that, Labour dealt badly with anti-Semitism complaints because it was all a bit of a mess. Now, we'd spoke at the time. Yeah, it was a mess, right? They should have dealt with those complaints a little bit better or the whole thing could have been managed better, right? But the idea that that's a lower moment than illegally invading Iraq is just like, these people are on cloud cuckoo land. It's obviously, I think, cynical, it's obviously cynical. And this idea that the EHRC, because they, if the EHRC says you're bad, that's the lowest, that's the lowest you can possibly go. Like, no, these are people who are appointed by the Tory government. Does that mean we should ignore everything they say? Absolutely not. But does that mean that we should question when someone says, oh, this is the lowest moment for this political party because the EHRC has said they've done something wrong? No.
1: I think it's really instructive because it shows you the role of the EHRC report and how it's been politicized, and as well as how the anti-Semitism crisis has been weaponized. It's been used to neutralize and shut down any discussion of other forms of racism in the Labour Party. Now, the thing about that Labour attack ad where they plastered Rishi Sunak's face and added his signature, claiming that he doesn't think that child sex offenders should go to prison, that, of course, comes after a solid week where the news is totally dominated by grooming gangs in which the offenders are South Asian. So, if we're looking at the way in which allegations of anti Semitism played out under Jeremy Corbyn, people talked a lot about tropes. We talked a lot about tropes where even if something explicitly anti Semitic hadn't been said, even if there wasn't any explicitly anti Semitic uh, imagery, it could be seen as an act of anti Semitism because it played into a wider negative view or conspiracy theory or smear about Jewish people. Um, you know, one really memorable allegation of of the trope was when um, I believe it was uh, Marcus Wadsworth had accused Ruth Smith of leaking to the right-wing papers. And the response to that was, oh, it's a trope, it's a trope about Jewish people. Now, I don't actually think that that was a trope, but that was enough to mm-hmm. get him expelled from the Labour Party, despite being a lifelong anti-racist. Now, that threshold and that way of understanding racism, it applied to anti-Semitism. That something was a trope. But when you've got a South Asian prime minister being accused of not wanting child sex offenders to go to prison in a week where the news is dominated by grooming gangs, where the offenders are South Asian, and he wasn't even an MP for many of the years from which the data has been calculated, you'd go, well, that's definitely a trope. That's definitely a dog whistle. That's definitely trying to play into the prejudices, which have been engendered by the Conservative Party. They're the main offenders here. The prejudices regarding people from an Asian background and child sexual offenses, that was the standard. But no one's talking about that. No one's able to even break into that conversation because of the existence of the HRC report, because of the anti-Semitism crisis. Because if you try and talk about anti-blackness or Islamophobia or forms of racism against Asian people or racism against the GRT community in labor, you are just hit with, well, the EHRC report, anything you say is what it? You're just trying to distract from the real issue, which is antisemitism. I don't have to trust a single word you say on these other forms of racism. I mean, that was something which I was basically hit with, which is when I was trying to talk about uh, forms of racism in politics life in Labour, the only response I got back was to do with antisemitism. And that is a totally cynical Political maneuver. It's got nothing to do with the thing which is really serious, which is tackling racism against all communities, wherever you find it. It's about using the way in which a narrative has developed around one particular kind of racism from one particular kind of alleged perpetrator and using that to snuff out and smother any other kind of anti racist activity.
0: Let's go to our final story. We are just weeks away from the coronation of King Charles. It's all very exciting. There'll be golden carriages, crown jewels, um, a hell of a lot of pomp and ceremony. The downside, there are many downsides, but one of them is the taxpayer will be footing the bill. The public aren't particularly pleased about that. 32% of the public say that the government should pay for the coronation, but 51% of the public disagree. They think someone else, presumably the king, should pay. The bill for the event, which is mainly for policing, is thought to be between 50 and 100 million pounds. And King Charles would, of course, have no trouble paying for it himself. According to The Guardian, the king is worth 1.8 billion pounds. A figure they say is derived from cars, jewellery, property investments, horses, art and the hereditary estate. Um, I don't know how much the horses come to. Um, Ash. People aren't as keen on this coronation as I think some people were expecting them to be. I mean, I suppose my analysis, I think once the, once the BBC sort of grinds into action and we're sort of suddenly, cut, you know, it's forced on us 24 hours a day, um, the, the public might come around. But at the moment, um, you know, the Telegraph has these sort of worried articles like no one cares about the coronation, what's going on? And now people don't want to pay for it. Well, what's your take on this?
1: Well, the thing that was really striking about that figure, that, Prince Charles's, sorry, King Charles's private fortune is 1.8 billion pounds, is that he could single-handedly finance the 35% pay restoration for junior doctors and still have nearly a billion pounds left over. Like that's a crazy amount of money for anybody to have. And, you know, I'm just I'm just saying that if we abolished the monarchy and did little, little bit of expropriation, we could probably have a really good NHS without having to tax anybody more in terms of their wages and their income. Just an idea, just floating that, that would be my preferred uh, tactic as chancellor. I mean, I think that you're right to say that some of these numbers will probably shift once the BBC's consent manufacturing machine kicks into action. But I think that... Um, You know, Charles was always going to be um, less of a sure bet in terms of public opinion. Now, I'm not simply talking about, you know, Princess Diana and Camilla and all of that kind of stuff. One of the things which I'm trying to get at is that his mother, Elizabeth II, really was, you know, the first queen of television. So lots of people bought television sets in order to watch her coronation in the 1950s. Um, You know, her first private secretaries were very against the idea of public relations. They soon got over that particular snobbery and the communications budget and offices of the various palaces absolutely blossomed. And she was somebody who reinvented her image at various points in her life so that she could go from this kind of you know young woman and young mother who you know represented a kind of you know optimistic britain at the you know beginning of a new journey post world war 2 and post empire um to becoming a grandmother of a nation you know if you were to believe the tone of media coverage you'd think she went around handing out you know little handfuls of quality street to everybody that she met rather than you know, making herself exempt from more than 160 laws. Um, Charles has had a very different relationship with the media. His um, you know, personal life has been something which has been considered fair game for tabloids for most of his adult life. And he's somebody who um was unable to play on some of those gendered expectations in the same way that his mother did. And I think what that adds up to is a less adoring relationship with the public. So lots of the things which I think were just considered par of the course uh, under the reign of his mum, so the massive taxpayer bill for all of this pomp and circumstance, you know, the preferential treatment that they get under the law those are things which I think are going to come under a bit more scrutiny and I don't think are going to be, you know, met with so much public support.
0: I agree. Let's wrap up there. Um, Thank you, Ash, for joining me this evening. Been a pleasure as always.
1: Thank you for having me. I really quite like post-flu Michael Walker. It's a bit like when you used to drink tiskies before going live. feels like the old days.
0: Yeah, that's why I feel like the reaction times are a little bit slower than they they might be, but... um... Yeah, it does, it does feel like the old times when we used to drink tiskies on the show. Um, I wonder how, how much longer I'll be like this. Um, find out tomorrow night. Um, I will be back, 6pm. Navarra Life, as always. Uh, thanks for watching. Love you guys. Um, You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.